Uh, today's sermon, I'm calling it Remain. And I kind of have some goals with this one. First off, um, I want to talk about the importance, the importance it is to remain in Christ during your own hardship. And then also, we want to discuss the importance of the church. So we're going to be looking in Acts chapter 2 at the early Christian church and, and what was going on then. And then the importance of the church, the importance of the Holy Spirit influence on the church. So we're going to be going mostly, the verse I want to highlight on today is Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. I'm not going to read them right now because we're going to break them down as we go through. But I do want to give a little bit of context for those that may have, um, maybe, maybe you haven't seen a Holy Spirit series where we went over this stuff, or um, just to make sure that you are, you're caught up. Okay, so after Jesus leaves... He tells his disciples, he spends 40 days with them. After, after he rose out of the grave, after his resurrection, he spends 40 days and he's seen by a bunch of people. He spends 40 days teaching his disciples things. And it's just, there's some pieces in the Bible that you just wish were there, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, obviously Jesus spent a bunch of time teaching with his disciples during his 40 days, but sometimes you just want to know like every little detail that he may have gone through. Uh, and we do have some, but uh, not all of that. So he spends 40 days with his disciples. And when he leaves, he says something. He says, where I'm going, you, 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 you can't go. And I am, if I don't go to the Father, then I can't send the Holy Spirit, which is going to come on down onto the earth to be with you guys. And so he tells his disciples to head back to Jerusalem and wait in the upper room. Coincidentally, this is the same upper room in which they had the Last Supper. And he tells them, go there and go wait. And so from the time that Jesus left them to the time that the Holy Spirit came down into the upper room and burst through the windows and the whole tongues of flames things was going on was 10 days. They were there 10 days in the upper room. And, um, and you've got to kind of wonder sometimes why does God make you wait? You know, because from where they you know, were to, to heading to Jerusalem, as James and Maria have said, because they just went over there, that everything is actually relatively close uh, in proximity, right? So when they were going in the upper room, headed back into Jerusalem, they didn't really have to travel that far. So they go to the upper room, and they're going to wait there, but they have no idea that they are going to wait 10 days. All they do is they go there, and all they have is the promise of God that the Holy Spirit will come. And I can't help but wonder what it must have been like waiting there during those 10 days, right? You get there, you're about 120 people. You may be crammed in this upper room. I don't know how much room there is in there. I haven't been. But you're waiting in the upper room, and a week goes by, and nothing has happened, and nothing has changed. And, and I don't know, you know, it's hard to say what they were like, but that's, that's a lot of patience. Like if you order something from Amazon and it takes more than 10 days to get to your house, you think, well, I pay for Prime. This is unacceptable, <laughs> right? So 10 days in, nothing. Or sorry, a week in, nothing happens. And, and 
And so they're waiting again, and they're waiting again. Now, I don't know why God does things in the way that he does or in the timing that he does. Why couldn't it have been that they got there, and then when they were settled in, you know, you know unpacked a little bit, that the Holy Spirit could have just come in in that moment? And, and, and why the waiting? You probably wonder that in your own life sometimes. You know, you have God's word. You have God's promises. And the Bible says that his promises, the Bible says that they're yes and amen. So the things that God says are, are yes. The answer is yes. And amen means so be it. So in spiritual terms, that's like writing it in stone. Okay, so you know it's going to happen. And so... They knew that in the upper room, but why the waiting? Why can't it happen now? And, and so in your life, you might be like, okay, I know, I know God's faithful. I know God comes through. I know all of these things, but what is taking so long? And so I don't know. I don't have the answer. I don't know why it takes so long, but I do know that the Bible says that his ways and his thoughts are higher than my ways and my thoughts. And sometimes you need to submit to his timing over our own timing because it must be greater than what we know. And he must have purpose, obviously, for what he does. There's a saying that God's timing is perfect. And we can look at the fact here for the disciples, they waited 10 days, and um, the time when the Holy Spirit came into the upper room, it was a time called the harvest, the, a festival of the harvest. And I think it's symbolic that God would come in at this time and thousands of people would come to know Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And I think they were going to experience a harvest that they didn't think they would experience. So maybe there's symbolism there. Maybe that's why God did what he did. But the period of waiting is not just about knowing exactly why you're waiting. It's about your posture in the time of waiting. So we're going to look at that in the disciples. What are the indications of the posture that they had while they're waiting? Because they had no idea it would be 10 days. Some of them might have think, you know, do I have to make it happen somehow? Do I have to conjure this up and trying to come up with a to-do list? rather than just being in the waiting. So, God, so the disciples did one thing that shows their attention. In the period of waiting there, um, they picked a new disciple, right? Because they had, they, there was 120 people in the room. They were all disciples, but there was that inner group of 12 that Jesus really mentored into. And so they, were, they had gone down to 11 disciples because, well, Jesus, uh, Jesus, <laughs> Judas betrayed Jesus and uh, <laughs> betrayed Jesus. And then he was so full of regret afterwards that he bought a field and he ended his life there. And, and so, so they were down to 11. So while they're waiting, they decide we're going to pick a, a new disciple. So they cast lots, and it was between uh, a guy named Joseph and Barsabbas. So they cast lots. Back then, again, casting lots was probably they painted rocks, and they're like, like, it's like flipping a coin. And that was a way that they made a decision there. But keep in mind, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes into their life, you never see them making decisions this way again. So don't walk away thinking you need to cast lots and make decisions for your life. Pray about it. 
So um, their intention was they're picking a new disciple. So they know for sure that God, his word, that what Jesus said was going to happen. And in their waiting, they're making preparations for when that day comes, for what they know God is going to do. You, you can tell through this then that there is no doubt in them that God's promises will come. In your period of waiting, live as if the promise is already yours and make preparations for what, so that you're ready for, for when that comes. Because I think sometimes um, we're waiting on God, and, and here they're fully waiting on God, but sometimes God is waiting on us too to, make, to, to, to get our life ready for the promise that he has for us, whatever that is individually in your life. So, so they're picking a new disciple, and, uh, and so we know that their, you know, their intention is they know everything that's going to happen is going to happen. And there's a couple other things that I think were happening in the upper room. Um, that in the upper room, there was focus, right? They were focused on the promise of God in their life more than on their immediate circumstance. Because you think about, you know, for them it was open-ended. They didn't know that it would be 10 days. But they were completely focused on what Christ would have for them. And they were waiting with a purpose. They weren't just wasting time. There's a big difference, waiting with a purpose and wasting time. Sometimes that can feel the same. They were waiting in faith. And here's an important part. Last time I preached on this topic, somebody came up to me and, and they said that, you know, like, uh, you know, sometimes a preacher says thing and your mind just goes off. And I'm like, oh, if I was up there, I'd say that. And so that happens to me at least. And, uh, and so they were waiting, but they were in the upper room without distraction, right? They were focused without distraction. In the upper room, there was not the busyness of life. I don't know how exact how busy things were back then, but I imagine that it was an act of faith to stay there and not try to go out and make provisions for your future or your plans that you have for yourself. And that would have been challenging. I think when we're in our, in our periods of waiting, we tend to um, continue to be distracted and let distractions come in. They were focused on Christ in an undistracted way, and they had quieted it down. Their, the circumstance had forced them to quiet down and slow down for a second. So, and, and then with that, how many times, that's what I'm saying, sometimes I think that God is waiting on us to do the same thing to become undistracted, to create space where we wait on God, where we put ourselves in a position where you say, God, my I'm putting my distractions aside. I'm keeping my focus on you, and I have faith that your word will come through. Right? God's answers are not always immediate. He has his timing, but we need to have our faithfulness as well. I heard a preacher one time say that um, I think that we've grown increasingly not great at this because our world is becoming faster and faster. 
and like I said, like, you know, like with the Amazon Prime package thing, say, we're not comfortable with waiting. You know, back in the day when you wanted to talk to somebody, a relative, you would write a letter and you sent it away. And then like six months later, you got the reply. And by the time it gets to you, it's not even relevant anymore, you know? And that's how you communicate. But now I can send a text to one of our missionaries in Thailand. And if he hasn't gotten back to me in like an hour, I'm like, does he like me? Is he <laughs> ignoring me? Right? Like maybe I offended him somehow. And, you know, and, and so <laughs> our world has gotten so fast that we've gotten increasingly poor. At least I can speak for my generations and the youth group that I had below me. We've gotten increasingly poor at being comfortable waiting. And the, God isn't changed. He still makes us wait. And he has a purpose for in the waiting is that we're running around busy and he really says, slow down. You know, like in the Bible, when it talks about taking a Sabbath and slowing down, it's actually an act of faith to take a Sabbath. If you're a business owner, you might know this more than anybody. To fully disconnect and walk away for 24 hours and take a proper Sabbath, you need to have faith that when you come back, it's not going to all be falling apart, right? Or maybe you think, I can't take a day off. I have bills to pay. I have all this stuff to do. Sabbath is an act of faith. But Sabbath is where we reconnect with God. What is your upper room? Have you created a place in your life where you are focused, faithful, you slow down, and you're undistracted. Here's another thing that happened in the upper room, is that they had fellowship. Not one of those people, remember there's 120 of them, not one of those people were waiting alone. They were waiting together. We'll see later on, we'll talk about the unity, but they were waiting together as a people. You know, if you've ever had to wait for really important news, right? Something a little more than just something coming in the mail. If you have to wait on test results from a doctor or news from a loved one, and then you have a few people that you know in your life that understand your period of waiting. They understand what, what you're going through. They know you know, the God's promises for you, right? But they understand what you're waiting for and they just check in. Hey, have you heard anything? And they're waiting with you with, in fellowship. And you know that when somebody asks you, hey, have you, have they, check, they check in on you, say, have you heard anything? Has a doctor called yet? Have you heard from so-and-so and how they're doing? For that moment, your waiting becomes a little bit easier. Because you, you get to, you know that you're not waiting alone. And you get strength to wait a little bit more. Waiting is an act done in fellowship, not individually. In your period of waiting in your life, whatever it is in your Christian walk, if you're like, God, I really need you to come through. Your Bible says that you'll provide, which he does. Your Bible says that you're faithful, which he is. But it's not, I need it now. And he's like, my timing, you're going to wait. And don't wait alone. Wait in fellowship. And one of the things that I want to try to talk, uh, talk about today is the importance of the church. And not necessarily the church as a building. Church originally just means a gathering. The importance of the gathering is the fellowship, right? 
Um, I said in a, in a past sermon that the Holy Spirit came down and took over two roles that Jesus had. One of the roles was to give his disciples deeper tr- uh, knowledge of gospel truths. Jesus did that for his disciples and to give them the strength to do the things they couldn't do on their own. And so when Jesus left, the Holy Spirit came and became that person for us, but he gives us each other. So when you're waiting in fellowship, you've been given strength to continue waiting a little more until that day comes when God's faithful promises do reach you under his perfect timing. So in the upper room, they didn't wait alone. And so finally, the, you know, what may seem like finally, the one morning, uh, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes in crashing through the window. It says like a mighty sound of rushing wind and tongues of that uh, fire looked like tongues. I can't remember the exact wording right now. Rested over their heads. And this is a moment where the Holy Spirit then claims the disciples in that room as his temple. If you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the significance of those two things, wind and fire, they always represented the presence of God. I think it's in Exodus, I wrote it down here, in Exodus chapter 40, somewhere in there. In Exodus 40, there's an image of God in a cloud and in flame resting on the temple, saying, my presence is here on the temple. Back then, the building was the church. If you wanted to get to God, you came to the building. They even had um, in the temple uh, a room called the Holy of Holies, which was separated by a thick curtain where the presence of God was. That if you went in as an unholy person, the holiness would kill you. His presence was in the building. Now at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in with those same two signs, and the Holy Spirit's presence rests on the disciples, just the same as it rested on the temple, because the disciples are now the temple of God, and not the building. So the two things happen, the wind and the flame. And they start proclaiming God's truth in new languages that aren't their own. And conveniently, they're surrounded by people of different dialects. And so they say, they, they start proclaiming God's truths in dialects that the people understand. Like if one of you guys started speaking French, because I'm, French is my first language, you know, and you just started saying in French, I would be amazed. And this is what's happening to those people. God is giving them spiritual power to, in, to proclaim God's goodness in another language. And the people are amazed, some of them making fun of them, but spurs Peter, uh, Peter on to, to preach a sermon and to address what's going on. And so Peter lays out the fact that, you know, Jesus is the Messiah. And he tells it to them in a way that they would understand through their history, how he came from David. And he's on the rightful throne. He's just kind of getting into it. And he digs into it deeper and deeper. And I think in my head, I imagine him becoming like increasingly passionate, okay? And, and then he says, out of nowhere, 
you know, he's getting to his point, and then he's like, and then this is the Jesus, and he's pointing to this crowd, and we know there's at least 3,000 of them there, maybe more, and he said, the Jesus that you crucified. And I think in that moment, okay, as a preacher, I'm going to lend you my lens for a second. I think maybe a part of him may have been like, oh, shoot, you know? Because <laughs> it, it probably was quiet for a second after that. This is the, okay, so this is about a month and a half after that Jesus was crucified, that this, that this happened. It's very likely in, in this festival that the same people that were in the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him, were actually here also in this crowd. And so Peter, who had denied Jesus three times, now empowered by the Holy Spirit, gives his exhortation and says, you crucified him. And then the blood rushes from his face. And he's probably thinking, now I'm next. They're going to come after me now. And I'm about to be rushed. And, you know, and panic. Because there's a lot of times up here where you feel passionate and you say something, you're not exactly sure how it's going to be received. Or if you're going to get fired letters and all these things. <laughs> he may have regretted it at the moment. But then the third and most important miraculous sign happens since the Holy Spirit. First the wind, second the fire, the third happens, is that the people in the crowds, their hearts are changed. Their hearts are changed and the audience, their conscience is stung. And then Peter... Um, he says a bunch of other things that the Bible doesn't record. And, and, and I, you know, sometimes you wish something was in the Bible that it wasn't there. But I think this was left out, obviously, on purpose, because everything the Bible does is on purpose, is that God doesn't need your, your skill and your work. And what you can do is just what you can do. And it means nothing if the Holy Spirit isn't involved. The Bible leaves out Peter's words because not that they weren't important, but they, you know what? They didn't matter enough to make it into the scriptures because you know, what does matter is the presence of the Holy Spirit in that moment. Peter isn't the one that is changing the hearts of those that are listening to him. He's not, it's not his special skill of words and his tapestry that he could weave, you know, communically that changes, does anything. It's when the Holy Spirit puts his weight on what you're doing that things actually begin to happen. And maybe sometimes the Holy, you know, we're in the period of waiting sometimes, maybe, is because God is waiting for you to get out of the way enough for him to put his weight on the situation rather than us thinking that we can do it on our own, right? They, they say, I've heard, and this isn't for all scenarios, but I heard a saying saying sometimes the gap between your prayer and the answer is how quickly you can learn the lesson in between, it's not us and our skills and abilities that can resurrect the dead. 
you know, the, the things that Satan has stolen. It says this, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There's been destruction in lives of the folks around us. There's been theft in lives of the folks around us, right? The sight has been stolen from a future that they hoped for, and we can't give that back to them as, as people, but the Holy Spirit can. He needs to put his weight on it. After Peter gives his message, the people who were listening didn't ask, um, what does this mean? They knew what it meant because the Holy Spirit was revealing it to them individually as they were listening. The Holy Spirit was giving them deeper knowledge of gospel truths, and they knew, and their conscience was stung. We'll pick up here at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter uh, and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What are we going to do? They recognize that they're wrong. They recognize their, their guilt in the situation. They recognize and they see that, you know what, yeah, uh, we did. We crucified Jesus. And, and here's, here's what that relates to us. Jesus, we all crucified Jesus, every one of us in this room. We have. And you're thinking maybe, well, I wasn't there. That was like 2,000 years ago. I got nothing to do with it. Like, what do you mean I crucified Jesus? Jesus said that he, no one is, has the power to take his life from him. Remember, he's an all-powerful God. Only he has the power to lay it down. So at any point while Jesus was on that cross, he could have come off of it. But he was, stayed there because he chose to stay there. And you got to wonder what then kept him there. And then an all-powerful God would have been able to, you know, see every one of our lives and know that every one of us needs redemption. Right? That Jesus, when he died, he had us in mind. And that's why he chose to stay on the cross because of my sin, because of the terrible things that I have done, and the way that I have fallen short from being able to be in communion with God on my own, that's what kept him up there. And he had me in mind. And so when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit reveals gospel truths to you. You recognize, oh, I did. I, I have crucified Jesus. I am guilty and, and so in here, that's what's happening to them. It says, they were stung. They says, brothers, what shall we do? Now, this word brothers, Peter, in his sermon, he was calling them brothers. And then they're replying to him again, calling him brothers, which means it wasn't like a fire and brimstone thing. He wasn't trying to condemn them, but rather he's trying to pull them in with love into the freedom and the salvation that Jesus offers they didn't feel cut off, um, and he wasn't being condemning. And here's the difference. There's a difference between guilt and shame and conviction and hope. Guilt and shame says that you suck, and you'll always forever be under the thumb of guilt and shame, and you can never get out, and you can never do anything good enough, and you are stuck there in that situation, 
hopeless. Conviction always has hope tied to it. Always. It, conviction and guilt, they might feel the same, but conviction has hope tied to it. I am wrong. What can I do? And he says, this is what you do. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. They're asking him, what do we do? Which is a hopeful thing to ask. I know there's something that can get me out of this state that I'm in. What is it? So what do we do? And he tells them some things that are not so much to do with what you're doing, but be. Be repentant. To repent, you have to believe first. You believe that God is a savior. You believe that you, you positionally are in a place where you need his forgiveness. And he says, you be repentant. And that doesn't come from a to-do list. Be baptized and be forgiven, and you will also receive God's promise and his promise of the Holy Spirit. And he says, because it's for you, and it's for your children, and it's for all of those um, who are far off. Kristen was talking about generational impact a couple weeks ago. And, and for her, you know, if you heard the story, you can go back and watch it, but her grandma or great-grandma, somewhere around there, was the first Christian and prayed for her family. And she waited and she waited and she waited, but she actually never really saw it. When, when she died, nobody had become a Christian, yet come a few generations later, everybody is. But she never saw that. But the Holy Spirit put his weight on her prayers. And they weren't just words coming out of her mouth. And, and when the Holy Spirit puts his weight on them, then things happen. It is impossible um, not to have impact without the Holy Spirit. Verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. The Holy Spirit went out and manifested in 3,000 more people. And this is the birth of the Holy Spirit-led church. And we start to see from this point on, 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 a mass or, on a bigger scale, those two jobs that the Holy Spirit had come to unfold, deeper knowledge of the gospel truth and strength to endure hard times. And so a Holy Spirit-believing and Holy Spirit-led church should fulfill those two things, okay? Should fulfill it. Come to church and being a part of church, because church is a gathering, I am not church up here. This building is not church. You should find those two things in your life. You should be learning more about deeper knowledge of the gospel truth, and you should be finding that you have strength to go through your trials. There's evidence of a Holy Spirit-led church. Those 3,000 people 
that they came in, um, they, they just, they were accepted and invited and loved. It doesn't mean that right when they came in, they were cured or, or all of a sudden that their behavior was immediately changed. Their position in eternity was, but they still had to go through something called sanctification. It just means when God comes in and he starts cleaning up, right? And he's like, hey, you know, maybe this isn't good. Let's get rid of that. Or, ooh, that's, you got some mold over here. You know, we got to figure that out. And, and I, I want to just talk about some few things about the church, right? Because the church is the body, the church is you. Those people were accepted and brought into the church, okay? The church is a hospital for the sick, not a place for those who are holy. Okay, so I like to think of it in my own terms like a gym. Why do you go to the gym? You go because you either want to get healthier or get better, or you are and you don't want to lose it, you're going to maintain that. Okay, so people who are coming into the church generally recognize that they've, you know, they need help. They're not perfect and they're not, you know, worthy of going to heaven on their own. And, um, and so when people say that the church is full of hypocrites, well, they're right. Because every one of us is, you know, if you really look at what you say and then how you act, we've all got a little hypocrite running around inside of us, right? And so in, you read it here, like 3,000 were out of them that day. 3,000 hypocrites came into the church. And I, when people say, like, it's full, it's like, yeah. And if you came, there would be more, because we all are. <laughs> the, purpose <of> the, <laughs> the purpose of the church is to experience Christ's sanctification in your life. It's a journey that we are all on, inviting the Holy Spirit in and letting him clean you. And doing it, again, not on your own but remaining in the body, despite sometimes you seeing imperfections, remaining in the fellowship and being given strength to go and do what you need. Verse 42, it says, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This is where we see those two things that the Holy Spirit does. They devoted to teaching and they were devoted to uh, fellowship all together and they had community they had deeper knowledge of gospel truth and fellowship verse 43 and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Okay, so remember these 3,000 people, they, the, for this harvest, this harvest festival that they had, people migrated and came from all over the place. And so when they were plugging into the church, their people who were staying there were probably had dwindling resources because it wasn't their hometown. But in order to be able to remain in the church, remain in the congregation, they needed generosity. And, and it, said, it says here that they started selling possessions and belonging and distributing to all those who had need. They had unity and they were being given strength in order to keep going. Now, 
let's not get this wrong. Later on, it says that they were meeting in their homes. Sometimes I think we read this and we think that, oh, everybody sold everything they had and it was like communism. It wasn't that way, okay? They were selling as the Holy Spirit instructed them to in their own life. It wasn't by the compulsion of any of the disciples, any of the, the apostles. There's not a thing in the Bible that says that the apostles commanded that everybody give. It says the Holy Spirit led them to be generous in each other. So remain in the family and to see each other's needs. Um, they had unity. And when the 3,000 were added, it, they didn't have a facility to hold 3,000 more people, right? Because they are the church. Verse 44, and day by day, day attending the temple together and breaking bread in, uh, in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and loving, um, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day after day those who were being saved. A worship team, you guys can make your way back up. Some interesting facts about this is that one of the apostles' mom, Mark, um, she had such a center. It says that they were meeting in their homes, right? I think a lot of times what we're doing sometimes is we, we want people here, and we're trying to get people to come here. But, but you guys, right now, we've got the worship team making beautiful sounds. There's a bunch of people here. I'm talking still for some reason. And, um, but I, I challenge you, come in, on a, come in on a Monday, come in on a Wednesday. You walk in through those doors, this room is empty and it's dark. And, and there's, there's not really anything going on in here right? Because this isn't the church. You are the church. Don't be so focused to bring people into here. Introduce them instead to Jesus in your own life. It says that in the early church, they were bringing them into their homes. How did they fit 3,000 people more, uh, 3,000 more people? By bringing them into their homes being hospitable. And yes, then eventually uh, once they would all gather and then go for a while at the temple and then go back into their homes. But they understood that they're the church. You want to bring people to church? Bring them into your home. Bring them into your life. Share with them. Have meals. Commune. And if the Holy Spirit inspires you to be generous, be generous within the body of Christ. They had unity. They were selling their possessions as they had need. Because of the Holy Spirit's influence, I was reading this from a commentary. Um, it said that there was no jealousy among them. There was no negative criticism, no wrangling or attempts to outdo each other. Because it says they had all in common. You guys, like, I know for me and myself, we've benefited from being able to be in this church family. Even if it comes down to babysitting, right? You guys watch um, this wonderful lady here, Gwen. Sorry, I'm singling you. I didn't ask her to do that. But she comes and she runs around, and my kids just love her. And they, she makes church exciting and fun for them. And that's, 
that's really good, right? And it's part of the, the family benefits, we'll call it. And there's many other things like that. They weren't trying to outdo each other, but they had all in common in unity. Others saw that they had unity together. They had devotion to God, love for one another, and they wanted to come in and be a part of it. It says that the, the Lord added to them day after day. And I know that um, sometimes some of us have had bad things happen in church. And it's not always been great. Uh, but I want to encourage you that if, if you're visiting from somewhere else, you know, and again, I'm not talking about going back to abuse if that was the case, but it is very, it's important for you to remain in the body of Christ, okay? Like if you go to a restaurant and you get food poisoning, you don't swear off all restaurants. Maybe that restaurant had a bad cook at that time and you go back and have a better experience. But you need to remain in the body of Christ. You need to remain in community with people. No, you don't need to do that to acquire salvation. Say, do I need to go to church to be a Christian? No, you don't. But if you take a piece of coal out of the fire and you put it over there, it'll grow cold. You need to remain in the body of Christ. You need to remain in the fire, right? So that we can have unity and we can be devoted to God together. We can give each other strength as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to go through trials. We can learn together and grow deeper knowledge of gospel truth and, and all of that. And um, you need to remain in the body. And church is not just about you always getting a need filled by somebody else, right? It's not just coming in on a Sunday and, and saying, well, check, I did that. You are the church. It's about being the church. When you go home, your home is the church. When you're driving around, your car is the church, right? And you need to invite people into your life, into the fellowship. And we, it says that as we devote ourselves to God together, as we love one another, the outside world was attracted by that. And day by day, people were coming to know Jesus. So we'll leave you with that. Thank you, God, for what you give us. Lord, teach us how to be the church.